Well, we are in a series titled Turning the World Upside Down, uh, based on uh, a verse in Acts 17, verse 6. And we're working our way through the book of the Bible that's known as the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, this morning is message number five. We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And uh, this is kind of a little inclusio, if you will, if you little put a little brackets around this this set of uh, sermons uh, between now and the end of November. And I'm just calling it Devoted. Devoted. And so this is uh, part one of Devoted. And I'm going to ask you to stand again and let's honor God's word and read it aloud together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your spirit to come now and and, uh, help us to understand the things that we're about to study, the things we just read. Lord, this is a familiar passage to many of us. Will you bring it to life again for us in a new and uh, precious way that we would uh, see new insights, that your spirit would use it again to challenge our hearts and to shape us individually as well as at a ch- as as a church, and uh, so come now. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The first thing that we see here, and the reason for the title of this little set of sermons, is that. The first thing we read right out of the chute, following the teaching of the event of the Ascension and then the description we saw last week of the day of Pentecost, the very first, very next words that we read is that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. The word is pros cartereo. And I want to draw your attention to it as a matter of, of practical interest, but also because of what it fundamentally means and and because it dominates and defines this entire passage. And it's the key that all to all that follows. Uh, Luke says that the congregation of disciples pre-Pentecost numbered 120. And the concluding verse in the section that we considered last week Uh, Verse 41 of Acts chapter 2 said that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 received Peter's word as he preached the gospel. Um, That is that they believed Peter's message about Jesus. They were baptized and they were added to the church. So it's this group of disciples now numbering somewhere in the ballpark of 3,120 people that Luke says in verse 42 were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then in verses 43 to 47, he provides a thumbnail sketch of of what that devotion looked like. Uh, More broadly, Uh, And we'll talk more about this two weeks from today. But more broadly, he reveals the implications and outworkings in a section that extends to chapter 6 and verse 7. This verb that's translated devoted, proskartereo, suggests a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a defined course of action. Uh, It means to be given over to something. It means to persist 
It means to be stubbornly constant and steadfast in spite of opposition or difficulty from without and in spite of the lethargy that we all experience from within. What Luke's use of this verb tells us is that these disciples were disciplined devotees, or if you prefer devotees, not dabblers. They were devotees, not dabblers. We might say today they were all in. Surveying the contemporary scene from the vantage point of this first century church, I think we have to admit that much of what characterizes the activity of so many who claim the name of Christ today cannot at all be described as devotion, but in truth is better described as dabbling. As an example, the Barna Group, a prominent Christian research firm, now includes in their definition of a practicing Christian one who may attend church only once a month, but who nevertheless, and I think ironically, makes the claim that their faith is very important in their life. 20% of evangelicals, they report, bounce between two or more churches. And a majority assess the value of church attendance not on the basis of their personal investment uh, in the, the advancement of the gospel, the ministry of the church, the expansion of the kingdom of God, or even in their own spiritual growth and development, but on the basis of their personal enjoyment of a particular kind of experience that they expect will be provided for them by others when they come to church. No wonder that across the American religious landscape, we are witnessing steep recent declines in both church attendance and church membership Uh, No wonder that the witness of the church in America is as weak as it perhaps has ever been. The Barna Group found 10 years ago in 2011 that 43% of Americans reported, and I'll put that in air quotes, reported that they went to church every Sunday. But by February of 2020, nine years later, that figure had dropped 14% percentage points. That's a historical statistic to just 29%. And of course, those figures depended on what people, and I'll do it again, reported about themselves. And we all report better things about ourselves than are actually true, don't we? Actual church attendance, actual church attendance nationwide is estimated not at 29%, but just over half of that, only 17%. It's the devotion of this early church, their intensity, their faithfulness, their persistence, their steadfastness, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that in large part explains the explosiveness of the gospel and the sudden expansion of the church in that first century. So what about you this morning? Are you a devotee? or maybe you're a more sophisticated devotee, you're a devotee. Or are you a dabbler in the Christian life? Are you all in? Or are you doing what some people call the Christian hokey pokey with your commitment to the church? A great deal of commotion, but only a small part of you is really in at any given time. The latter part of verse 42 tells us what were the priorities of what I'm just going to call the first Christian church of Jerusalem. Luke says that they devoted themselves, and so we need to ask, to what? And the first thing that we see is that they devoted themselves as of first importance to the apostles' teaching. And I'm just going to give you a summary of each of these first four, or, or, or a summary of these four priorities to kind of lay the groundwork for this whole series. Um, mini-series, if you will. So they devoted themselves as of first importance to the apostles' teaching. And so this is the priority that we're going to examine today in just a a few minutes. Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, that the church, which he refers to there as the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You may recall that when Jesus commissioned the apostles, he said to them, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So two participles flowing out of the the command or the commission to make disciples, that is baptizing and teaching. Jesus had equipped and appointed the apostles to be the chief interpreters of who he is, what he accomplished on our behalf, and what he wants the church to know and obey. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. The word that Luke uses here is koinonia, which means literally partnership, which is what we here at LifePoint have chosen as our word for membership. And it speaks to the, the common life of the church in at least two ways. First, it's all about what we share in together, what we share in together. The Apostle John said that our fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We share in that together. Secondly, it's all about what we share out together. That is what we give, what we invest, what we release. It speaks to generosity that that goes beyond money, although it most assuredly includes that, to voluntary sharing of property and possessions. And we'll look more deeply at this two weeks from now. Third, they devoted themselves, or more literally, they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. There's disagreement among scholars on just what is meant by this expression, the breaking of bread. Some say it points to the practice of communion or the Lord's Supper. Others say it simply means that they ate together, both of which I'm in favor of. some say both are implied that the that the Lord's Supper was practiced, but it was contextualized within larger shared meals that the church regularly enjoyed together. And that, that reminds me that on the 21st of November, two weeks from today, uh, we're going to enjoy a meal together after the second service, which is something we haven't really done on a Sunday for quite some time, and uh, <clears throat> only once since uh, covid So looking forward to that. I hope you'll be here for that. Fourth, they were committing themselves or devoting themselves to the prayers. This is the third reference uh, in Acts to a tangible commitment to frequent and fervent prayer. Prayer was a large focus of the the life of the early church as it needs to be for us today. Without devotion to prayer, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, nothing significant gets done for the kingdom through the local church. We'll examine this three weeks from today. Verses 43 through 47a, or the first part of verse 47, briefly illustrate these four priorities in action. And I just want to unfold that briefly before we move on. As Jesus had done during the days of his ministry on earth, and as was true on the day of Pentecost, verse 43 tells us that the teaching of the apostles continued to be accompanied by wonders and signs done by the apostles, so that there was a general sense of awe, Um, but not just awe as we might interpret it today, Uh, not awe as in the is in the sense of awesome, dude, you know, a, a superficial kind of sense of awesomeness. A, a more literal translation is that fear came upon every soul. And I like that better. It tells me something more about what was going on. Fear came upon every soul, cast it in a bit different light. In fact, one very old translation, the Wycliffe translation, has it, that dread was made to each man. Dread was made to each man. So we, we, we make a mistake if we construe the, the awe mentioned here as mere amazement uh, at the awesomeness of the wonders and signs, though it was that. But, but more deeply, 
there is this pervasive sense of the fear of God and of deep reverence for God that as they as those first century believers, these new Christians saw what was happening, there was a sense of fear. And you hear people say, well, we shouldn't fear God if we're Christians. And there are, there's many senses in which that is true. And yet there, there ought to be this sense of he is way bigger than I am and way holier than I am and way more in authority than I am. And I, he is the one to whom I am personally and ultimately accountable. A pervasive sense of the fear of God. A pervasive sense of deep reverence for God. Their commitment to the fellowship translated then into a communal lifestyle, verses 44 to 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. That phrase, in common, is that same word again, koinonia. In fact, we're going to run into it over and over again here in the early chapters of Acts. It's important to point out that what they were doing was not communism. Uh, several years ago at a, at a church I served prior to Life Point, I was teaching on this very passage, and I was talking about this, and there was I heard later that there was some guy out in the foyer ranting that the preacher was, was promoting communism. Um, I, I don't know if they showed him the door, but um, it's a funny memory. But communism says... What's yours is ours. We'll take it. What's yours is ours. We'll take it. We're seeing some of that these days, aren't we? But Christian fellowship, by contrast, says what's mine is yours. I'll share it. What's mine is yours. I'll share it. No seizing of property was going on here. Rather, Luke is describing a remarkable, spirit-motivated sense of selflessness and generosity enabled by that life of the Holy Spirit within them and among them, and it gave shape to a common lifestyle. Or should I say, an uncommon common lifestyle. Third, their devotion to the breaking of bread consisted of shared meals as well as observing communion together during those times at table together, day by day, attending the temple together. These are Jewish believers, so they're still going to temple daily and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Fourth, then, we read that their prayer life spilled over into praise and worship, that they were praising God and having favor with all of the people. And then out of that, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was a steady and consistent stream of new believers into the fellowship of the church. Their devotion set the pattern for every Christian in every generation. Don't miss this. Don't look at this as a peculiar provincial moment, but rather mark it well. Their devotion set the pattern for every Christian in every generation. One very large church in the Midwest used to state their understanding of their mission as a church this way. Our mission is to develop fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to develop fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have to pause and, and think about that for a little while. What priorities, what commitments, what disciplines, what behaviors might we expect should characterize the life of someone who is developing as a fully devoted disciple. What do you think? Might we expect them to be students of the Word of God? I think so. That they would daily read the Bible, meditate on it, study it, memorize it? Would we expect a fully devoted disciple of Jesus to engage themselves in vital fellowship with other believers? 
That would include mutual love, mutual accountability, mutual service. And that they would faithfully invest their gifts and resources within a local church in a committed way. Might we anticipate that they would make it a priority at every opportunity to join with others in worshiping God in that local church? Would we expect that their daily lives would include prayer and that they would be praying regularly with others as an ordinary part of their lifestyle? Do you think that we might expect that a fully devoted disciple might also be sharing their faith with some regularity with unbelievers so that they might come to a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ? So having asked those questions, let me ask one more. Again, are you a fully devoted disciple or are you a dabbler? See, a passage like this one offers, a, I think, something of a matrix, doesn't it, for, for evaluating uh, the health and vitality of our own discipleship or, or, or at least our devotion to those things that result in spiritual growth. And that's because these priorities define what we ought to think of as the normal Christian life and the life of the normal Christian church. So again, if you're in the process of looking for a church to call home, You should look for a church that, first of all, recognizes and worships Jesus Christ as the eternal God and only Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and and a church that exists for his honor and his glory alone. You should look for a church that honors and teaches the Bible for what it is, the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God. It's amazing to me how many people will come to LifePoint. I've heard this over and over and over again. It's so good to come to a church that teaches the Bible as the Word of God. And, and honestly, I, I have to laugh and ask the question just on, about on every occasion, what else is there to preach? What else is there? What, what's being taught out there in other churches? I'm not there, so I don't know. But I can't imagine that you would come every week to hear my opinion on things. I, I do have lots of them on lots of subjects. I, I, I could just back up the truck and drop the whole load every week. <clears throat> but that's not going to do anything to help you grow spiritually. It might make you, you know, Embrace some of my really awful sins or prejudices. You should look for a church that's committed to becoming a loving community that emphasizes deep personal relationships between believers, that that expects its members to invest their giftedness and resources in building up the body of Christ and advancing the gospel. And those deep personal relationships, by the way, are what our life groups are all about. We can't enter into those kinds of things in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. You should look for a church that has a vibrant life of worship. Worship that glorifies God and exalts Jesus Christ. Some people like to attend churches that sing the old hymns. I love the old hymns. Some people like to attend a church that does contemporary Christian music. I love that too. And, and there are churches that, that uh, you know, these days that are doing Celtic worship or other churches that do cowboy worship. Um, take your pick. See, see, style is always secondary to substance. And the question ought to be, 
Is this church exalting Jesus Christ? Are they glorifying God by their worship? Because once you're there, you can worship with anybody, can't you? I mean, you, you might not like cowboy music. You might not like marching bands. I heard a guy say one time that marching bands are to music what a bison stampede is to dance. (laughs) Something like that. But I love John Philip Sousa. You should look for a church that acknowledges its dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit and so makes prayer a priority in nearly every group and every gathering. You should look for a church where the gospel is proclaimed both in the pulpit and in the classroom and in the hallways and in the parking lot and through the lives of its people everywhere they go. By the way, these priorities ought to define the normal life group. Because life groups are a microcosm of the life of the church, the church in miniature, if you will. If you're not in a life group today and you're, you intend life point to be a part of your, uh, to be your church, then I want to say get into a life group. You might say, Jim, you're, you're starting to get repetitive here. And I would answer, yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. And if you're beginning to hear the repetition, then I'm being successful. See, the, the priorities that are established here in Acts 2, 42 to 47 need to be visited and revisited regularly because they describe the patterns and the priorities that God's Word prescribes for the normal Christian life and the normal Christian church. My heart for you as your pastor is is that each of you individually be devoted disciples and not mere dabblers in an insipid, casual, cost-free form of Christianity that amounts ultimately to no Christianity at all. And having said all of that, let's turn then to the first of these priorities of the early church, the apostles' teaching, and recognize, first of all, that this first Christian church of Jerusalem was a learning church. They were a learning church. John Stott, whom I quote a lot, is because uh, he's one of my favorite theologians, wrote, We might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. I love that. These are baby Christians, all of them. Uh, Not that they didn't have a biblical background because they were Jews, but they had to learn to reinterpret everything they knew uh, in light of Jesus proving himself to be the Messiah. Jesus had stated the apostles' mission, as I mentioned earlier, as making disciples. He defined the means as calling them to a radical commitment to Jesus Christ that was represented and symbolized by baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as well as teaching them to obey all that he had commanded them. And Jesus didn't commission the apostles to call new converts to some kind of mystical experience that led them to jettison the life of the mind. An essential component of the great commandment is that we are to love the Lord of our God with all of our minds. With all of our minds. The Apostle Paul told the believers in Rome that an essential component of the transformation that the Spirit wants to work in each of our lives involves the renewal of our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds matter to our discipleship. Let's get very clear that an attitude of anti-intellectualism is incompatible with the fullness of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Your mind matters. Truth matters. Simultaneously, the goal of the teaching that Jesus prescribed for the apostles was obedience to his commands. 
So having our heads full of theological precepts that never translate into active Christ-honoring application in our daily lives that never results in transformed character is not at all what Jesus had in mind. It's certainly not what Paul had in mind. Those filled with the Spirit of God are concerned to know and to understand the Word of God. Those filled with the Spirit of God are concerned to know and to understand the Word of God. See, I don't think it's any accident that Luke tells us that these new disciples were devoting themselves first and foremost to the apostles' teaching. I mean, I, I might have, you know, given the opportunity just gone to the breaking of bread. That sounds good to me. But they committed themselves first to the apostles' teaching. They, they had just received the Holy Spirit, but they didn't, please make, please observe this, they didn't make the, their experience of the Holy Spirit the thing. They didn't get together and compare notes on their experience on the day of Pentecost. Oh, you should have seen the size of the flame on my head. And I felt like I was right next to a speaker when the sound of a violent wind came through the room. Oh, that's nothing. You should have heard, you should have seen what happened to me. They weren't doing that. Instead, it's clear, we, and we shouldn't miss it, that those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God are immediately concerned to know and to understand the Word of God. Why is that? It's because the primary, the overarching goal and purpose of God the Holy Spirit in the world, in the church, and in our individual lives is not to call attention to himself, but in all things to glorify Jesus Christ as Lord, to glorify God the Father and the Bible, God's Spirit-inspired Word. God's Spirit-inspired Word is all about Jesus from first to last. It's his story. A desire to be fed by the word of God is tacit evidence that someone has been truly born again. Peter wrote 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. If we're genuinely full of the spirit of God, we will hunger and thirst For the word of God. Remember the psalmist said, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Notice as well that they didn't presume, as some do today, that the Holy Spirit was the only teacher they needed so that they could simply dispense with human teachers. Can Can you imagine if they had adopted that attitude and yet There are many Christians today that express that. I've I've heard it on many occasions. I just need the Holy Spirit. I, I don't need the church. I don't need a pastor. I don't need a teacher. I don't need a mentor, a a discipler. I I just need the Holy Spirit. And if the early church had adopted that attitude, they would have rejected all of those whom God had provided to be the teachers of his people, beginning with the apostles. Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And notice that the Holy Spirit is working through numerous inputs from variously gifted people. See, here's, here's something I know for absolutely certain. I'm not all you need each week. (laughs) I'm barely a small fraction. You need inputs from other people, other voices, other other God working through the gifts of other people. It takes a whole community of believers to make a disciple because we need that 360-degree influence of all of the spiritual gifts impacting on our lives individually, and we need to be investing our giftedness for the sake of others. 
So these brand new disciples in the first Christian church of Jerusalem sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they didn't stop. They persisted. That's part of what that word devoted means. They persisted. Next, observe with me that they didn't disdain sound doctrine. They didn't disdain sound doctrine. When some people today hear the word doctrine, they react with, oh, oh, doctrine. Yeah, that. We don't need that. That's divisive. Have you heard anybody say that? I remember um, making a similar kind of... Uh, representation in a sermon years ago when we were still at Timberline High School. And there was a woman who was sitting right right back there, right in front of you, Sandy, uh, kind of in that spot. And, and when I said, oh, doctrine, that's divisive. We don't need that. She said, amen, <laughs> before, before realizing she was mostly outnumbered and she had to- totally misunderstood See, so understand this morning the word translated teaching in verse 42 is the Greek word didache. It's also translated doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. So, in fact, it wasn't long before this phrase, the apostles' teaching, came to refer to a body of authoritative Christian doctrine. It didn't take very long at all. The teachings of the apostles were summarized into a body of doctrine that what what today we might refer to, we would refer to as a systematic theology. All of the doctrines, all the essential biblical doctrines taken together. And it was considered by the church to be authoritative because it centered on the person and work of Christ and it was handed down to the church by the apostles themselves. This body of doctrine came to be known as the tradition or the traditions. You may may say, well, I've never heard that before. And I would say, yes, you probably have. For example, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Here he's talking about that body of apostolic doctrine to the church in Thessalonica. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. By the traditions, he's not talking about the way that they celebrated Christmas. Again, he's talking about that, that body of apostolic doctrine. Again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. To Timothy, Paul referred to it as the pattern of sound teaching and the good deposit, 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. To the elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul called it the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Jude, the brother of Jesus, referred to it as the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. It's probably important for me at this point to clarify for you who have a Roman Catholic background that what the New Testament calls the tradition of the apostles is not the same at all as what the Catholics call the tradition of the church, which is the cumulative teachings of the various popes down through the centuries. And you won't be surprised, I think, to hear a Protestant minister such as myself say that 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 immense volume uh, is replete with contradictions, with inconsistencies, with inaccuracies with superstitions and and even blatant falsehoods. The purpose of summarizing and systematizing the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine was to put it in a form that could be passed on to others, especially after the apostles passed away. So Paul, having effectively instructed Timothy, for example, could say to him, 
what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that they would in turn hand it down to other men, faithful men, and they in turn would hand it down to other faithful men and so on. Well, let me land this plane with three principles or we might simply call them observations. First, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to love and submit to the Word of God. This theme is contained in the whole of Scripture. Let me just point us to a couple verses in Psalm 119 where the psalmist wrote, Oh, how I love your law. How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, when the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life, you're, you're going to gain a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God, and you're going to want to read it, you're going to study it, you're, you're, you're going to want to meditate on it, you're going to order your life according to it. And, and that might be a great diagnostic thing, self-diagnostic again, in your own life. How's, how's, how's my spiritual temperature? Am I hungering and thirsting for the Word of God? Now, one thing I've observed in, in, in my own life, and, and I, don't, I don't know if other people experience that, this, but someone years ago used to use the term spiritual breathing. And, and I think there are seasons when you just, you, you just can't get enough. And then there are seasons where you're working that all out. And then the season comes again where you're getting all you can. And I think there is that sense of spiritual breathing but we ought to ask ourselves, what's the level of my hunger for God's Word? How am I doing? Someone once said that a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. And uh, so if the, the Spirit of God lives in you, you're going to find yourself desiring more of the Bible, not less. And as you receive it, it will strengthen you and it will sustain you in, in your own walk with God, in your own life. The Spirit of God enables next the people of God to understand the Word of God. The Spirit of God enables the people of God to understand the Word of God. Theologians call this the, the, the principle or the doctrine of biblical illumination, that the Spirit illuminates the Word, which is a simple way of saying that the Spirit shines a light on the Word in ways that we, so that we can understand it in ways that we would not, could not, unless he had done that. Jesus promised his disciples that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And, uh, boy, how important is that? I, I saw uh, an article uh, written by um, a Christian artist, Sandra McCracken, recently, and and she was talking about how, as, an, as a child, she had memorized so much of the Word of God. It's a big emphasis in the church she grew up in, just, just to memorize God's Word. And she was talking about how often now, as an adult, it, it just kind of comes out, sometimes in the least expected ways and the, the least expected places. Holy Spirit, teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So one of the primary purposes then of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to help us to know and understand what God wants us to know and understand. His assistance, his intervention are absolutely essential. And so the, the psalmist prayed, open my eyes, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And you, if you looked at this verse with a kind of a, a cynical, critical eye, you'd say, well, there it is, just read it. And that's not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I need you, Holy Spirit, to open my spiritual eyes that I can understand what it is that I am reading in your word. I was uh, surfing YouTube the other night, which is something I'm doing more often these days, um, and came across a some music, a, an album that I had when I was young man um, 
that I just loved and was it was one of those albums that was I don't know if you've had this experience, but the, the album was just significant in my own spiritual life at one time. I would just listen and listen and listen. It was on vinyl, so that dates me. But And somewhere along the line, I lost it. I don't know whatever happened to it. But there it was on YouTube. And I and it's by a, a Christian artist named Bob Cole, who was part of the early um, contemporary Christian movement. He was one of those guys from Costa Mesa, California, uh, Calvary Chapel, the Maranatha uh, movement, and then what became the Maranatha label. But he, he wrote a song that was on that album that that uh, was sung by churches everywhere back in those days. And, and it, even occasionally you'll hear it today. And it, it it's just a little song, just a little chorus. And it says, Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus to reach out and touch him and say that I love him. Open my ears, Lord, and help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. And, and unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we will not understand God's word at the level that he would like us to. The apostle Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Just reading that passage, I say, God, I want to see all of that. I want to know all of that. I want to perceive the depths of all of that. And Paul said that, that then the prayer is that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation would reveal that to us. Finally, the word of God equips the people of God to accomplish the purposes of God. The word of God equips the people of God to accomplish the purposes of God. Second Timothy three sixteen to 17, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, punch in the nose that we all need sometimes for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Sometimes that word complete is translated sufficient. Sometimes it's translated adequate. Sometimes it's translated mature. But what the Spirit of God does with the Word of God is He uses us to equip to equip us, uses it to equip us for ministry, for the things that he calls us to do. Well, let me close this with this last question. And again, if you sense the repetition, then then I've been successful. What might devotion to the apostles' teaching look like today? Let me suggest four things. It might look like a commitment to a daily pattern of Bible reading and of meditation and of memorization. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm too old to memorize. No, I would say, no, 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 you're not. Uh, because you can recite a whole bunch of commercials that you hear regularly on television or on the radio or on television. You, and all of us can do that. Some of you can sing all the words to the Gilligan's Island uh, theme song and several other shows. And, so memorization is possible, but um, anytime you're talking about biblical meditation, one of the results is going to be memorization because biblical meditation is not like Eastern meditation. It's not like emptying your mind and you know chanting some meaningless mantra, or maybe it's not meaningless. Maybe you're calling on a demon. You know that's possible too in Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation is is uh, the word actually means to mutter. It's a verbal activity. And so, you know, God said to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your what? Anybody remember that? Your mouth. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall be careful to do all that's written in it. Because the biblical form of meditation is to roll it around as it were on your tongue to speak it out loud over and over and over again, and you can't help but memorize when you do that. And so that's biblical 
meditation. Um, Devotion of the Apostles' teaching might look also like regular attendance, even maybe showing up on time. In, In this church, just a thought, or another, where every work, every week, the Bible is taught as the Word of God. See, no church can be healthy unless it gathers together regularly to be devoted to the exposition of the Word of God. And that's true in our individual lives as well. Devotion to the apostles' teaching might look like uh, engagement in a systematic approach to Bible study. Like, for example, base level, a life group. Or Bible study fellowship. Or a precepts study. Or some other deliberate, organized form of studying God's Word. And then finally, devotion to the apostles' teaching today will look like thoughtful application of and obedience to what God reveals out of all of that. James, the brother of Jesus, said uh, that the one who uh, looks at the word and doesn't do it deceives himself. He's like a man that looks in the mirror and, uh, and walks away and quickly forgets what he looks like. And uh, which is like the beginning of happy days, right? Remember that? And Fonzie would look in the mirror. Anybody? I'm dating myself here, but no improvement needed. Walk away. You cannot grow to maturity in Christ without an intentional, consistent diet of God's Word. That's the reality. So again, I'll ask you, are you devoted Or are you a dabbler in God's word? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It is uh, the essence of equipping for ministry as your Holy Spirit uh, illumines it to us as we come to understand it, as your Holy Spirit enables us to obey it. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we thank you that you chose to put your word, your spirit-breathed word in written form so that we today might have it and, uh, and encounter you in it and be changed by it and to understand the, the implications of the gospel for our personal lives. Lord, help us to be men and women of the word. Help, our, help us to be a church that is characterized by teaching the word of God to children and to teens and to adults, uh, that we might be a faithful church, a faithful bride, ready for you when you come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.